0: The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. This is the last last sermon on this series called The Unlikely Messenger. And we use the word unlikely because it means, according to Webster's, holding little prospect of success. God chooses unlikely messengers. God chooses us. And that's the cool thing about it. God looks at us and says, yeah, I can use you. I want to work through your life. Isn't that a great thing? You know, God delights in choosing people that everybody else wouldn't choose. God wants to choose people that are just willing, just open, open hearts saying, I'll do what you want me to do, God, whatever that may be. And I think sometimes we're terrified by that prospect. Uh, We're scared. We don't think we're qualified. Maybe you don't think you're uh, one of the good Christians or good people that can uh, do something for God. And that's the beauty of it is that the Lord just comes to us and says, Hey, I would like you to obey the Great Commission. You see, God doesn't place upon us the burden of success. He doesn't come to us and say, I want you to be a great success in this field. In fact, he never says that to anybody. God just comes to us and says, I want you to obey. Obey my commands. Obey what I've told you. Let him worry about the success. You see, so we just give the message. We don't worry about the results. We don't worry about what they're going to say or how they'll respond to us. We give the message, and we let God take care of the rest of it. The obedience is upon us. The success is upon him. In the Old Testament, there's this great story of Samuel and King Saul. It's in 1 Samuel. In the Old Testament, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You find this story about Saul and Samuel. And Saul had just recently become king. And God said to Saul through the prophet Samuel, he said, Saul, I want you to go out and conquer this army, these Amalekites. Attack them, kill them. And then God gave specific directions. He said, I want you to do this and this and this and this. Well, Saul decided that he didn't want to do all those things exactly how God said they should be done. He wanted to do it his way. And so he set about and he reasoned to himself. And this is what we do. You've got to catch this because we do this all the time. He reasoned himself, I think it should be done this way. Or I think it can be done this way. Or I'll just do it this way and that'll be okay. But that isn't what God told him to do. And so then he's, he's there and he decides, I'm going to, to offer these sacrifices up to God and thank him for the great victory that we got. And he begins to set about doing that. And Samuel comes to him and catches him in that very process. And so you look here in verse 22, Samuel says to Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord? your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols because So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Very important concept and principle here about those who seek to do religious things. People who seek to do good and do what's right before God must take note of this. That God always desires obedience over worship over sacrifice, over a religious act, over a religious endeavor. Jesus took it one step further. In the book of Matthew, Jesus said, if you have an issue with your brother your sister, you're fighting with them. You have conflict. They've offended you or you've offended them, and there's a problem between you and your brother. And you find yourself at a place of worship before God, maybe worship or prayer. Jesus says, go ahead, lay down your Bible. Get up from the altar, put your hands down, quit singing, go and get right with your brother first. Make it right, make the relationship right. Because listen, folks, if your Christianity doesn't affect your daily living and your daily life, what good is it? It is just religion. We like to say that at Canyon Ridge Church is where you can lose your religion. Leave it at the door. You don't need that here. Right? It's it's about living for Christ, living for God in a way that transforms your daily living, the results of how you live your life. And so here Samuel comes to Saul and says, listen, Saul, you did half right. You had half obedience. You did some of the things that God said, but not all of them. And then you want us to just approve of your behavior when, in fact, God desires total obedience over your worship. Obey him first, Samuel says. And because Saul violated that principle, he said to him, you have lost the kingdom from this day forward. God is giving it to someone else. He gave it to David. Saul remained as king throughout his term but Samuel anointed David right after This story that we're looking at in the book of Jonah is very similar and something very similar happened to Jonah God came to Jonah if you have a you can turn Jonah chapter 1 uh, page uh, 550 God gave this clear message to Jonah he said Jonah I want you to go to Nineveh go to Nineveh and preach to them that they must repent and turn of their sins And if they do, I'll forgive them. But Jonah didn't want to do that. He did not want to obey the command that God gave him. And so he rebelled. He literally got in a ship and went in the opposite direction. So he's on the ship, goes down in the very bottom of the ship, falls fast asleep. He's comfortable. He's good. He's sleeping. little drool coming out. And the captain of the ship comes down and says, Hey, wake up, man. Wake up. We are about to go under. God sends this massive storm, and they're all going to die. So at that point, Jonah says, Okay, okay, God. I get it. I get it. This is me. This is my fault. He says to the sailors, Throw me overboard, and everything will be fine. So they do, they throw him overboard sea goes perfectly calm, and everything's okay. Now, this story tells us something very interesting about the nature of God and his attitude towards you and me. And I think it reveals something about God that we don't like. In fact, I think that most Americans find this aspect of God highly offensive. It really, really bothers them. It takes them off. They literally do not want to accept a God that acts this way. And in fact, I think there's a lot of of confusion around this whole issue, even within Christianity. I find Christians expressing that same attitude. Recently, uh, a huge church, I mean pastor of a big, big, big church in Michigan, like 12,000 people. He is so offended by this part of our faith, this aspect of who God is, that he, he literally wrote a book about how hell does not exist. So I would like to kind of dive into this a little bit this morning and hopefully bring some, some clarity and some clarification to this issue. The first question that comes about here is, first of all, wait a minute. Does God discipline people? I mean, it says that God sent the storm. Jonah was disobedient. He rejected what God asked him to do. And then God sent a storm. Does God send storms on people to discipline them? Does God cause earthquakes and tsunamis to discipline people? If you take that line of thinking a little bit farther, you know where it takes you. This is that God then would be angry with you. He would be disappointed in you that God would in fact, ultimately judge you and send you to hell. You see, just looking at how this unfolds here for Jonah, really you think it through, that leads you to that place, a scary place, a dark place, I think, of what it could say about God, what it could mean. The thought that a loving God could condemn people to an eternity of suffering and hell. Is just plain an absolute offensive thought to most people. I would say in America at least, it's probably the number one objection to Christianity. How can you say that God is loving and wonderful? And I see that in Jesus. Read the read the red in the New Testament, and it's wonderful. It's about this guy, he's got surfer hair. He's white, blue eyes. He's so handsome and so nice. And, you know, they see this picture of Jesus and, and uh, can imagine God disciplining people. How can a loving God send someone to an eternity of suffering? I mean, isn't waterboarding immoral? Right? And I think if you ask Christians, or if you ask Americans, does the idea or the concept of God being forgiving and loving offend you? They say no. How about the concept of of turning the other cheek and forgiving your enemies and forgiving those who come and do evil things to you? And Americans generally like that concept. They embrace that and they say, well, yes, that's good. And that's probably true. That's how it is. That part of Christianity is accurate and true and and that, that we embrace a God who's loving and kind. But think about this. Do you know in other parts of the world, in other countries, that concept of turning the other cheek is absolutely offensive to them? That they cannot accept that. Did they completely, open-handedly reject any concept of turning the other cheek or forgiving those who trespass against you? It just doesn't sit well with them. It's not right. I mean, your enemies are to be destroyed. You defeat your enemies. You don't pray for them. Excuse me, this microphone is falling. You don't pray for them. You certainly don't love them. In other parts of the world, you hate your enemies. You're expected to. The culture tells you to hate enemies. And so when Christianity is presented in the context of that culture, in that country, they object it. They they reject it. They say it's not right. So which culture is right? Ours or theirs? Well, the answer is that Christianity is a transcultural truth. And at some point, somewhere, every single culture in the world is going to be offended at some point of Christianity. At some point, somewhere along the way, something about it is going to offend every single culture in the world because it is a truth truth It applies anywhere. In our culture, the point of rub, I believe, is the concept of divine judgment. So I think we should take a look at it. Most people think hell works like this. You do bad things in your life, And, you know, I mean, whatever, doesn't matter. You cheat on your taxes. You you break the speed limit. Just whatever is bad to you, you do bad things. And at the end of your life, you stand before God, and he has some sort of a scale, and he weighs it out, the good and the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, well, then you get to go to heaven. But if the bad outweighs the good, then you go to hell. And you go to hell for all of eternity, and hell looks like a place of uh, of fire. There's burning. The devil's down there. That's where he lives. He's got a little nice mansion there in hell right next to the lake of fire. And all the demons are running around with pitchforks. They have horns. They're red-faced. And they torture you as you're in hell. I think that's a a very common depiction of hell. with some pictures there to show you that. But the biblical picture of hell is very different from that. First of all, the devil is not in hell. The Bible says that the devil is cast to the earth, and that he roams around on the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can destroy and devour. The Bible also says that the devil spends some of his time in heaven. That may be surprising or shocking too, but yes, he spends some of his time in heaven before God. Standing before God in heaven, accusing God's people and the church of sin. Call him the great accuser. But he is not in hell. Hell will not be run by the devil or his demons. That is not the biblical truth. Hell, as portrayed and taught in the scriptures is total and complete separation from God. It's the opposite of everything that is God. So all all of God that is good and loving and kind and peaceful and merciful, all those concepts and characteristics of who God is and his nature, there is none of that in hell. Because hell has none of God. When you are in hell, you are completely cut off from him. There is no sense of his presence whatsoever. It's the total and complete absence of the presence of God. And so listen to this. Listen. Hell is the trajectory of the soul wanting freedom from God. We me say that again. Hell is the trajectory of the soul wanting freedom from God. This is what people say. They say, God, you have too many rules. You are intrusive. You are too hard to obey. You, it's impossible to do all the things that you want us to do. And we want to live our own way. We want to be free from you, God. We want to live a life away from you that God either doesn't exist or he's of no consequence to me. And there's all varying degrees of that feeling or opinion. Some people say, well, I like parts of God, but I don't like the other parts. Or I like the kind Jesus, but I don't like the fact that God might be a judging God. And sometimes people pick and choose. But remember, to reject the Scriptures, all of them, is to reject Jesus because Jesus affirmed the Scriptures, and to reject Jesus is to reject God the Father because Jesus said that you can only have the Father through me. So you can't just take part of the Bible or part of Jesus or part of this And be obedient. If you reject Christ and his word, you set a course for your life. For hell. And it starts very small and very simple. Just I don't want to follow that. I don't want to abide by that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey that. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. I want to choose for me my own freedom. Freedom apart from you, God, and your commands. It's exactly what Jonah said. It's exactly what Saul said. And it's what millions of people say all the time. A demand for freedom a demand for freedom from the constraints of the Bible. And so they reject it. And this process of soul disintegration begins when you're born. And if nothing changes that course, then throughout your whole life, you're on this path that leads to hell. Unless something changes your path, until unless something intervenes and changes the trajectory you're on or the course you're going, you will end up in that place. You will die. You will die, You, and the soul will live on. But it will live on in the same trajectory that it was on before you died. It will continue on that path. And so if you're living and then you die, God doesn't send you to hell. He doesn't condemn you to hell. God isn't up there saying, well, you're bad. You go to hell. No, you chose it for yourself. All your life, you've been saying to God, no, no, no. I don't want you. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to obey you. I want to do my own thing. And so at the end of your life, he simply grants you what you wanted. Separation from him. You craved it your whole life. You asked for it. And so finally he just gives in and lets you have that freedom you have been craving. And for all of eternity, your soul lives on completely and utterly cut off and separated from him. Hell is, in effect, freedom from God. Jesus was wanting to illustrate this for his followers, and so he told them a parable. And we know that parables are stories that are made up. Okay? They're not real stories. They don't happen. story that Jesus makes up to illustrate how the kingdom of heaven is. And so in Luke chapter 16, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 16. Stay with me here, I'm almost done. Luke 16, we have this parable that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man in Abraham's bosom. Verse 19, Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. Who wouldn't want that? Sorry to hear you didn't uh, win the lottery. I don't think if you did, we would probably know about it. So what would you miss out on, like 600 and some million? Sorry about that. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scrapes from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and he was buried and his soul went to the place of the dead. So Jesus is saying that the soul lives on in eternity. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames here get this concept of burning. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. So no one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets had warned them, Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. What an astonishing story, passage. And it's interesting to note that even though their state has been reversed, the rich man doesn't notice. Lazarus is now enjoying all these wonderful things and he has been sent into torment. The roles have been reversed, but he doesn't notice. He's still looking to Lazarus to be his servant. He still has the gall to say to him, hey, Lazarus, my servant, bring me some water. Notice he doesn't ask to get out of hell. He just complains that God didn't give him enough warning. And that's how it is. You see, when you get into that state of total self-absorption, where you've completely rejected God 100% and you want nothing of him, and so he has granted that to you and withheld himself from you, you literally lose your identity. It doesn't even mention the guy's name. It just says rich man Lazarus. His identity is it's set. It's firm. We know him by name. But this guy, we don't even call him by a name. He's just rich guy. Isn't it not, interesting to note this guy's incredible denial? The denial of where he is at and his blame shifting. His spiritual blindness, and how great it is that he can't see the very state that he's in and why he's there. You see, hell is the freedom to choose your own identity. Your own identity, who you want to be, separate and apart from God, nothing to do with him. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it before, or if you're not a Christian this morning and you want to look at this subject further, I really highly recommend you getting a copy of that and reading it. It's called The Great Divorce of C.S. Lewis. He says this, and I quote, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself or wish that you could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer stop. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine, It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will become hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Hell, according to Lewis, is the greatest monument of human freedom. Did you catch that? To him, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. In Romans 1.24, God says that man has chosen his own path. And so at some point, then God says, fine, and gives him over to the own logic of his own thinking. God essentially says, okay, you've got it all figured out. That's great. Have what you've figured out and have it separate from me. God doesn't send people to hell. People cho- choose that path. They choose that path and they follow it their whole life. Every one of us in this room were on that same trajectory at some point. Everyone. Romans tells us that every man and woman is born into sin, so every one of us is on the trajectory of hell. At some point, God came to us, or to you, and changed that whole path. I think about the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was on that road, that trajectory that was to send him right to hell as a murderer of Christians. The Holy Spirit intervened and confronted him on that path and said, Hey, think about this. And he turned around, changed his whole life, embraced the cross of Jesus. At some point in your life, God sent an unlikely messenger to you. Maybe it was your mom and dad, or maybe it was a friend, or maybe it was a school teacher or a coworker. But somebody God sent to you. And told you about the love of God. That God has been pursuing you with his love your whole life. Every turn of your life, God has been after you and chasing you and pursuing you with his love. Saying, I love you. I love you so much that I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And you either respond to that love and say, yes, I choose that love. Or you reject it and say, "No, I, I don't want that." Some people, what they do is they take half. They take half of Jesus. So I, I, I want the love, but I don't want the discipline. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, it's uh, interesting when you when you're a parent. And you sometimes you see your children doing things that you know is destructive. And if they continue on that path, then it's going to take them down the road to some great heartache and pain and agony. And so as a parent, you step in and, and you try and change their path. You try and influence them in another way. another. And sometimes that looks like discipline, right? I'll never forget the first time that I, I just, I, I just you know, you, you have that aha moment. You know, you get it. I was about 30 years old, and, you know, I've been disciplining my kids, and, you know, I've got kids for the last, you know, five or six years. I'm looking in the mirror shaving, and it hit me. "Ah, My dad wasn't as dumb as I thought he was. You know, when he whooped my butt back then, I understand why he did that, because I need to whoop this kid's butt, You know? And it clicks you. I get it. Oh, I understand. That discipline was because my dad loved me. Because he wanted a better life for me. Because he saw that laziness produces poverty. He didn't want me to be poor. So he's beating that laziness out of me. But God is showing you your whole life that he loves you and desires the best for you, and wants you to prosper and have hope and joy and peace. And when you follow that path, it includes some occasional discipline. Now, does that mean that every tsunami and every earthquake is God's discipline of mankind? Oh, I don't believe that. No, I don't think so. It certainly was in the case of Jonah. But I will tell you this, when God disciplines you, He's going to use something within your realm of living. And usually the form in which God sends discipline is through something we just do not want. Your mother-in-law finally rebukes you in a way that, you know, is just the voice of God, but you hate her so much you just don't want to hear that. Or maybe a child says something. Or a drunk man on the street. Or something on the radio. Or you see a sign on the road. It hits you. And you know God is speaking to you through that. You know, there is no divine uh, switch that kind of comes out of heaven and hits you in the rump. God doesn't do that. He uses the things in your life, and maybe it's just the people around you who are saying things to you you just don't want to hear. You don't like it. In fact, maybe it is God speaking to you through them. I firmly believe this, that if Jonah said to the captain of that ship, I don't know. I have no idea why there's a storm. And didn't listen to God's rebuke through that captain. He would have gone down with that ship. The ship would have gone down. All those men drowned along with Jonah. And God would have called somebody else to go to Nineveh. I believe that God will send storms to his people to correct their path. I call it a corrective storm. And maybe it's on your finances, you know? Finances just completely fall apart. I mean, it's just disaster. And, and money, you just, you, it doesn't matter how much you earn. It comes in, it all just goes out and it's gone. And you're constantly facing financial hardship. It's because God said to you, Obey me in this. Set aside 10% and give it unto me. And if you do that, I'll take care of the rest. But you don't trust him. You don't want to obey that. And so we're in this storm. Maybe it's in relationships. God has spoken to you about, hey, you're not treating that person right. You need to forgive that guy. You need to forgive your neighbor and let him go. And you won't. You know, Jesus told a story about that. He said, if, if you call it the unmerciful servant, well, if you've been forgiven so much by God and you won't forgive other people, that makes you a hypocrite. And that is offensive to God. And so your unwillingness to forgive, your unwillingness to let it go, you got some problems in your relationships. Maybe it's a different relationship. Maybe all of a sudden you got some other guy who doesn't even know you hating on you, sending bad texts to you, hacking your Facebook page. I don't know. Maybe it's in the area of your time, how you use your time. And God said to you, hey, Redeem the times. These these times are evil, and so you need to make the most of your time, how you spend your time. And so you disobey that warning, and you disobey that instruction, and so you have no time. Your time is gone. You, you, You lay down at the end of the day, and you put your head on your pillow, completely exhausted, didn't accomplish half the things that you needed to accomplish, and you say to yourself, I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted, I'm going through life so fast, why don't I have enough time? Maybe you're frustrated in ministry. You have these desires to do ministry or do something, but God told you, He gave you a command a while ago, I want you to do this as as it pertains to the ministry, and you haven't done it. And so now there's this great frustration. You see, obedience brings safety. Bring safety. Now, if you were to ask somebody in our church four years ago, and we were at that time called Bethany Open Bible Church, if you were to ask somebody in our church at that time, is that a safe, peaceful place to be? They would have said no, no way. Because at some point the church began to disobey. God's call to the Great Commission to go out into the world. And it became about taking care of ourselves, making getting our needs met and, and catering to us. And because we did that, God said, Okay, here's a little storm for you to wallow in for a while. Don't find safety here. Don't find solace and peace here. Because there is no safety here if we reject God's command to be out there. Safety is in obedience, peace is in obedience. I want to ask you this morning to search your own heart, look at your own soul this morning. Forget about the guy next to you or somebody that you know that really needs to hear this. Look at your own soul this morning. Is there something that God said to you that you need to obey? And you have put it off. You have said no. You have said that's too difficult. I know I'm supposed to go and tell this person that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did but I just can't bring myself to do it, God. The scriptures this morning are reminding you again how important it is you obey those things. Maybe God has said to you the last couple of weeks about somebody you need to invite to Easter and you've not been able to do it. And maybe things have happened and gotten away and you've said, well, oh, well. Be very careful. I encourage you this morning, if God has spoken to you plainly, please, please, for your sake, obey. You will find peace and safety in that obedience more so than you will in disobedience.